The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now we're joined by the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee. Thank you for joining us, Minister. And I want to talk to you about the bill that you brought today to Cabinet to strengthen laws about consent in rape cases. But just before we get to that, I do want to ask you about a story we covered in detail the last two days here on The Last Word, which I think was deeply shocking to everybody who has listened to it or has read about it. And that's the case of the coercive control exercised by Garda Paul Moody against a woman who was living with cancer and had to undergo years of the most appalling treatment by him. And people wonder, why only a prison sentence of three years and three months? What's your opinion on that? Well, firstly, if I could, Matt, just pay tribute to um, the young woman, to the survivor, Nicola, we know her name is, who has come forward and who has gone through such a horrific deal at the hands of someone who should have protected her and, and was her partner um, but obviously subjected her to this abuse over many years um, obviously I don't want to comment on specific outcomes or, or in particular sentences but what I would say with any case with any type of um, offence it is always something that is open to review where we look at course of control this is an offence that was only introduced in recent years uh, we have had just over 55 cases that have been brought and I think in and around 20 prosecutions so while that is a wonderful number and I think the more people that come forward and the more cases like this that we see it will encourage others to come forward the penalty that was set at the time was a maximum of five years I think we need to allow particularly where we have new laws to look at the cases to look at how it is operating and then obviously I think a decision can always be taken do we need to review do we need to do more do we need to increase sentences and do we need to go on go beyond that I think what's really important about this case is the fact that we have a conviction is a fact that even though this person was a person who held such significant authority was in a relationship with this woman he was not beyond the bounds of prosecution and members of Angarda Shiakana put every effort into making sure that the strongest case possible was brought forward and that this person was brought to justice uh, and I really do hope that that will encourage others to come forward knowing that irrespective of who their, their abuser is that there will be people there to support them and that the courts will that you know that, that there can be a conviction at the end of the day. I, I know people are very upset because this is a member of Angarda Shiakana. I know members of the Gardaí are very upset because this obviously casts them and, and people are asking questions how could this happen so you know there is work to be done there and, and I've spoken to the Garda Commissioner who assures me that they have their own work happening to make sure that they root out these kind of people and that we don't have people like this working in on Garda Shiakana. There was a statement last night after the conviction saying that he was no longer a member of Angarda Shikona, which is quite obviously he shouldn't be. But that has led to questions as to whether he resigned or as to whether he was sacked, because the distinction is important. Do you know what happened with him as no longer being a member of Angarda? Well, look... Firstly, I think the most important thing is that he is not a member of Angarda Shikana and people need to know that he is no longer a member. Um, there's obviously a disciplinary process and a system that the Gardaí applies. So once the severity and once the case itself was brought to light, he was immediately suspended. And as is the case and should be the case, a person is allowed due process. The trial has happened and obviously we've had the outcome and we've had sentencing. Um, I had said earlier that I had thought that he had resigned, my understanding is that, uh, or sorry, that he had been dismissed, my understanding is that he had resigned, but I have 
absolutely every confidence that he would have been dismissed so we can get caught up on who did what first. This was obviously something that had happened immediately, but it was, I have absolute no doubt the intention that he would be dismissed. I think we have to take into account this case happened in the last day or two. So who got there first should be irrelevant here because the intention would be that this person would have been dismissed. So I just want to be clear on that. Yes, but I think it's important because we've seen many cases, too many cases in recent years, where people described as former Gardaí have been convicted in the courts of various crimes. And we've discovered that they have resigned from a Gardaí Shikana before they could be sacked, uh, resigned so that when they go into the uh, case, they're described as a former Garda. It, that possibly further undermines people's confidence in a Garda Shikana if the Gardaí aren't seen to be taking a strong stance against people. Well, again, I think this is down to timing. Um, and I have every confidence and understanding that this is what would have happened. I think the situation that has arisen here is that the person themselves resigned before there was an opportunity because you do have procedures that have to happen here. So I think the most important thing is that this person is no longer a serving member okay. who, has, who, who would have had significant power for 22 years, who abused that power. He is no longer a member. You know, perhaps, again, this is something that we can look at, but I think people would be you know, the most important thing is to know that he is no longer a member and that the intention would have absolutely been to to dismiss this person. But, you know, this is a matter of timing and I, and I think we can we can scrabble over that, but yeah, the most okay, important thing is that he is, he is not a member. And the most important thing to many people is that he's going to be imprisoned as a punishment for what he did, albeit if the laws as set out did not allow for longer term of imprisonment than the judge imposed. Now, I want to ask you about the bill you brought today to Cabinet in relation to the laws around consent in rape cases. Explain to me, please, what you want to do. Well, what I've brought forward is a bill which really has a number of actions and the overall intention is that we will encourage more victims of rape and of sexual assault to come forward, that we will have more cases and hopefully more prosecutions. In particular around consent, what I'm proposing, uh, and I've agreement now, is to strengthen and to clarify consent to ensure that there is absolute clarity that consent was freely given. So at the moment, there's what's called an honest belief test. So a subjective test, which means that a person who is accused, and it can be a man or a woman accused of rape or sexual assault, if they can prove that they honestly believed that at the time a person was consenting, then that is a defence. They do not have to go to any lengths to show that they took any steps or measures to show and to understand and know that there was actual consent. So we are changing this to an objective test, which essentially means that a person who is accused would have to show that they took reasonable steps and they would have to prove this to a jury. So that, you know, examples that you spoke to the person, that you asked consent, that you had a conversation, or, you know, in some really horrendous situations or cases that we may have heard before, that the person was awake, that the person was conscious, that the person to a reasonable other person was in a position to consent so that they weren't inebriated, that they weren't drunk themselves or that they hadn't taken some other substance and weren't possibly in a, in a position to consent. So I think it's really important that we make it absolutely clear that just because a person thought that the other person was consenting, 
you know, we all have to make sure if we're in a relationship, if we're in a consenting relationship or if we've met a person that we know and that we take the steps necessary to make sure that that other person is willing and consensual in that relationship and in that sexual uh, act at the time. So it's, it's really important. It's something that many of the advocacy groups Many survivors and victims have called for. It was a recommendation in the Law Reform Commission and then reiterated again uh, in supporting a victim's journey, which, as I said at the outset, it, it's an overall plan as to how we can improve the criminal justice system. There's a number of elements to the bill today as well. So while it is not something that is generally used as a defence, I am making it absolutely clear in law that alcohol can never be used as a defence. So saying that someone was drunk, they didn't understand or they didn't, know the other person wasn't consenting because they are drunk, we are making it black and white in law that that cannot be a defence. Separate to that then, we are extending the anonymity. So at the moment, anonymity applies to a victim or to an accused in a rape case, but not for sexual assault. And again, this is a deterrent for people coming forward for fear that they will be named, for fear that this is something that will be cast over them. Um, and I want more people to be able to come forward. So there will, of course, be reporting in courts, but people will have a right to remain anonymous. There will, no be pu- will not be public um, inclusion in the gallery, so to speak, during a trial. And again, this is about trying to make it a more comfortable space and a more welcoming, if you could say that about a court, but a more welcoming space for victims to come forward. Separate to that, then again, just to say we have and will expand um, separate legal advice and support for victims for sexual offences cases where it only applies to rape trials. So quite a number of actions, I think, all really collectively important in supporting victims and encouraging them to come forward, if I, you know, in that context. Okay, can I just go back to the first point, the sort of substantive point brought up. Will this make it any different for juries in coming to a conclusion as to what actually happened in a case where one person is making an accusation and the other person is denying it? Well, look, this is always the case in a trial where you have two points of view, you have two arguments and you have a prosecution and you have a defence. The I suppose the evidence that would have been or that currently has to be brought forward by somebody um, defending themselves is a lower bar, shall we say. They have to show that they themselves believed and that there was an honest belief, whereas now a jury will have to be convinced that they took the steps necessary and they will have to show that they took the steps necessary. So, I mean, if a person, um, a, a victim was clearly intoxicated, if there are, you know, and I, I suppose I can only describe potential uh, cases but if you have other witnesses there who are able to explain that a person was intoxicated was perhaps not able to consent or there were other people again able to corroborate certain parts of it which clearly could show that a person couldn't have given that consent which means that an accused could not have taken those necessary steps. So there will always be various different factors in a case, but there is now an added layer where a person will have to show, I mean it, it comes back to the whole issue of consent, healthy relationships, having these discussions, making sure that we understand what consent is. And this is all part of a wider suite of measures and actions that we're taking as part of the Zero Tolerance Plan. We look at what Norma Foley uh, discussed last week um, and has opened up a consultation for Junior Cycle as to how we engage with younger people around consent, around healthy relationships, what's an unhealthy relationship. So it's all part of this. You should be very clear and you should be able to know and understand that the person that you are having sex with or or having a sexual relationship with, that they are consenting. There should never be ambiguity. It should never be just one person's 
belief over the other person. So I think it's, it's really important well, that we make that, that message. In relation to healthy relationships, you've also been quoted this week on the prevalence of pornography in our society, saying it's too easily accessible. Um, what, why do you think that is and what would you propose doing about that? Well, look, I think we, we all know um, the fact that you can access pornography very easily. You can do it online. It's accessible to anybody who can access the Internet, and that includes young children and, and younger people. Um, we've had a lot of, I suppose, anecdotal evidence, but very clear evidence as well. And the report that you mentioned this week, the Men's Development Network shared a survey that they had undertaken recently where you have more than 70% of men under the age of 40 reported using pornography at least once a week. You then had various different age groups and in particular looking at younger people um, and how it has impacted them, their relationships, what they expect in a relationship. So, you know, I think it's unrealistic for me to say, well, we're going to ban porn or we're going to only allow it to be accessed, you know, in certain ways or by certain people. You know, the internet is a very difficult space to, to manage and it's a challenge that all governments and countries have come up against. So we need to be educating and talking to people around what consent is and healthy relationships because unfortunately for a lot of pornography it has become much more violent it has become much more degrading and I think in particular for young girls it depicts a very unrealistic vision or or idea of what a healthy sexual consenting relationship is so it's a very difficult space to, to get right, it's a very difficult space I think for some people to talk about because it is something that is very much there and it's, it's in our society. But I think just even seeing the results of that survey this week, seeing how much it's impacting on younger people and their attitudes to sex um, and, and their partners as well, I, I think it's really something that we need to be dealing with and, you know, engaging people with at, at a much younger age. OK, I'm going to be coming later in the programme to Nolene Blackwell and Dr Catherine O'Sullivan to talk about the issues in relation to your rape laws. But there is something else as Minister for Justice I want to ask you about because we had your party colleague, uh, the Minister of State, Hildegard Lockton, on the programme last night. I was asking her about the issue of transport police and she said that's more of an issue for the Department of Justice than the Department of Transport. So, as you're the Minister for Justice, what about the potential for actually trying to protect against antisocial behaviour on our trains and on our buses by having a dedicated transport police? So look, this is something that I have spoken to the Garda Commissioner about a a number of times. It's been raised with me, I suppose, by colleagues, particularly where you might have incidents that happen and we we now more than ever know where something has happened because of social media and and a lot of things are recorded. Um, The Commissioner is obviously and his team are responsible for allocating and deciding whether you have special units or where resources go and at this moment in time they are not of the view that they need a dedicated public transport unit however what they're saying is that it can be met through various other types of community policing so for example a lot of the issues that generally arise and that we've seen are on the Lewis, the Dart in the Dublin and Greater Dublin area on the bus services so at the moment we have a specific operation it's called Operation Sol and that is there to manage and coordinate coordinate the different resources in all of the divisions in Dublin. It means more overt but also covert policing presence on the various different, so the Lewis, the Dart, the train, the bus service um, and I suppose that the outcome of that is you know, everything from issuing antisocial behaviour orders where appropriate on our, our, our public transport, making sure that you have the presence there, full stop. Trying but are to they doing the well enough at present? Is the existing system doing well enough to protect people and to punish miscreants? 
Well, I, I think they are. And I think, unfortunately, we do see where incidents happen. And, you know, even the one over the weekend, we do know that the Gardaí did arrive on the scene and that there was actions taken afterwards. It is very easy, obviously, to see something happening on social media and see the first few moments without somebody being there. At the same time, we don't see where incidents are prevented. We don't see where there is a huge amount of work actually being done. And we don't necessarily hear about where there is a Garda presence and okay. where people are monitoring. So, look, there's always more that we can do. And that's why the Garda Commissioner, as well as this operation, we had quite a significant day of awareness on all of our public transport. It was, it was Operation Twin Track. So, you know, while there's no separate dedicated transport unit, there is always work being done and specific targeted operations on this and in particular around the Dublin Greater Area, which is which is something that, you know, okay. is major problem, more problematic than other areas, I would think. Minister, it's just one last thing I need to get back to because a lot of people are texting and wanting to know because the difference between resigning and being sacked as a Garda, does that have any implication for pension rights and other entitlements? Look, and, and this is an issue that has come up in the last day or so, and I really do appreciate where people are coming from with this um, around whether or not someone can keep their pension, um, irrespective of whether someone is dismissed or resigned. Understanding is that if they have paid up to a certain point, then they are entitled to that. So this is, it's really, it's a question that's much broader than on Garda Siakana. This is more in terms of our our public service and and our pension and how it is applied. What's very clear is that this individual will no longer be able to pay into this pension pot and will not be able to access anything until he is 65. But, you know, I understand where people are coming from in terms of whether or not somebody should be able to access it. I don't think it matters whether a person has resigned or, or is dismissed if they have paid up to a certain point. You also have to take into account you know, look other factors. Do they have dependents? Do they have children, partners? All of these other issues. But it, it's a much wider discussion. It's a much wider issue that I think impacts across the public service okay. and, and maybe it's a discussion for, for another day. But I don't think it's impacted either way as to how he how he finished up in, in the role that he was in. Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.